Hi, everybody. We're going to spend our time today um, exploring what I think is one of the most sort of surprising and unsettling chapters in the Bible. And if I, I, I want to try to explain what I mean by that. So many of you have heard me talk about, and those of you who were just in my classes came up in that, in that class as well. One of the things that makes the Bible so unique and uniquely powerful is that it does not subscribe to a theology that in later rabbinic Judaism came to be known as Gamzula Tova. Whatever happens, that's also for the good. In fact, the Bible on numerous occasions says, allows the prayer, the person at prayer, to say, this is not litova, this is not for the good at all, this is a nightmare, and I refuse to say anything else about it. Um, what is striking is that most psalms that say this, academics call these psalms psalms of lament, we could call them just as easily and colloquially psalms of complaint, most of these psalms contain, not all, most, contain some resolution within them. That is, the sense that at a certain point, I'm confident that God will yet answer me, that one day I will be brought to praise God again, that the situation I'm in will somehow be ameliorated, etc., etc. What makes Psalm 88 so incredibly striking and almost wild, for lack of a better term, is that it is unrelenting in its gloom and bleakness. And one of the, th I mean, it's really, it is uniquely unrelenting in its gloom and its bleakness. And one of the many things that I hope we can talk about over the course of our time together is what is a text like this doing in Tanakh, right? A text that accuses God of failure, essentially convicts God of failure, and then walks away, right? But what are you supposed to be left with when you encounter a text like this? Um, and... It's perhaps not surprising, I mean this with no obnoxiousness at all, just to be clear. It's perhaps not surprising that this text is so muted and not well known by most Jews. That is to say, it is so radical and so, I think, unsettling in so many ways, theologically, spiritually, that it's not surprising that it ends up getting kind of submerged in the Jewish tradition. Um, and so I, I'm interested, both intellectually and spiritually, for us to sort of let it reemerge and see what we might learn from engaging a text like this. Um, now, um, just to sort of lift your spirits, I, 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 in my notes here, I have I, 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 three comments from introductions to this psalm by modern biblical scholars. One writes, This is the most desperate of all laments. Another writes, it presents a wintry landscape of unrelieved bleakness. And a third one says, this is a text unrelieved by a single ray of comfort or hope. <laughs> and just to make you more unhappy, what I, I, shy, would like to argue is this text is actually far bleaker than most scholars are willing to admit. And I'm, I'm going to try to show you that. And then, again, my real interest in a certain level is beyond reading this text and engaging with it is to ask like, what it's doing and how a text like this might operate in um, a healthy religious life. Um, and I'll just say for now that the text seems to be about illness, although often in the Bible, illness can also be taken to be metaphorical for other forms of suffering. For example, Israel's exile is on multiple occasions kind of equated to 
um, illness. When God says to the Jewish people, Ani Hashem Rofecha, I am the Lord your doctor, um, that does not necessarily mean I'm going to heal you from your physical ailments, but rather I'm going to heal you from the illness that exile represents. I say this because um, I don't want in any way to mitigate the reality of illness here, but one of the things that makes Psalms so powerful is precisely that they are elusive about the precise circumstance they are describing. And for a long time, historians of religion used to say, oh, that's an amazing coincidence, right? That you can read a psalm, and the same psalm, you can read about your illness, you can read it about your loneliness, you can read it about your unemployment, you can read it about you know, the collapse of your marriage, whatever it might be. And more recently, in the last 20 or 30 years, scholars have actually argued that's not a coincidence. That's actually how these texts were constructed to be prayers that could resonate in incredibly different times and places. It's precisely because they work hard not to make their concrete circumstance overly pin-downable. There are probably more eloquent ways of saying what I just said, but right, right? It, they work hard to elude concrete you know, identification so that tens of hundreds of thousands, millions of people over you know, thousands of years in countless places can say them and stand inside the eye of the prayer. So here's what we're going to try to do. I need one loud Hebrew reader um, and one English reader to go back and forth verse by verse. And I'm going to do my very best not to say a single word while you read the text, and then we'll, we'll work on it together. Okay, please. Dear. Great, you don't know what that means, me neither. Great, go ahead, try. Oh, I said I'm not going to say anything. I'm sorry, Steve, I'm going to behave myself. <laughs> a song, a psalm of the Korahites, for the leader, on Mahalat Lehanot, a maskil of Herman the Ezraite. Adonai Elohei Yeshuati, Yom Tsa'akti Balaila Medecha. O Lord, God of my deliverance, when I cry out in the night before you, let my prayer reach you, incline your ear to my cry. For I am sated with misfortune, I am at the brink of Sheol. In your day, for Haiti Kneget Kigever Haiti Kigever in Eyal. I am numbered with those who go down to the pit. I am a helpless man. But me team Hoshi Kmo Halalim Shokve Kever Asher Lo's Hartam O Behema Niadha Nigzaru Nigzaru, but yeah, great. Abandoned among the dead, like bodies lying in the grave of whom you are mindful no more, and who are cut off from your care. Shatani before Tachtiot, Bemachashakim Imtsolot. You have put me at the bottom of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Alai Samcha Chamatecha, Bechol Mishbarecha. Your fury lies heavy upon me. You afflict me with all your breakers. Selah. 
Meyudai. Meyudai, my friends. You make my companions shun me. You make me abhorrent to them. I am shut in and do not go out. My eyes pine away from affliction. I call to you, O Lord, each day I stretch out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise to praise you? Is your faithful care recounted in the grave, your constancy in the place of perdition? Are your wonders made known in the netherworld, your beneficent deeds in the land of oblivion? Yeah, same meaning, yeah. As for me, I cry out to you, O Lord, each morning my prayer greets you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me? Do you hide your face from me? Oni ani. Ani ani. Ani ani. I'm sorry. Govea minoar. Govea minoar. Nasati emecha afuna. From my youth I have been afflicted and near death. I suffer your terrors wherever I turn. Your fury overwhelms me. Your terrors destroy me. They swirl about me like water all day long. They encircle me on every side. You have put friend and neighbor far from me and my companions out of sight. Okay, everybody feeling good? Okay, so before we do anything else, let's just, just out of curiosity for a minute, let's just take a couple of responses. What struck you as you listened to this? First of all, how many people are familiar with this text before right now? Okay. Minimal. Okay. Um, okay, so a couple of thoughts, things that struck you as you heard this text, read this text, before we kind of systematically think about it. Yeah, Pop. Uh, I feel like I just did <laughs> Wait, you feel like you just did Tachanon? That's very interesting. What do you mean by that? It's a lot of the same imagery in Tachanon about, you know, everything is horrible, we've been rejected, we've been sinners. That's kind of how, like, they want to do Tachanon in the morning. Do you see um, anything here that suggests that he thinks he's a sinner? Well, I mean, when you do Tachanun, you're just kind of, all these horrible things are happening, you're being punished, woe is me, you know, 
that the whole business about we can't praise you from the grave? I mean, yeah, but wait, but Bob, I want to push you here for a minute because there's a difference between saying woe is me and woe is me, it's my fault. Those are very different postures. I Meaning, I just want to note, see, in many Psalms of Lament, what you have is the statement, I sinned, but I don't need to be punished like this, right? Proportion, God, proportion, right? And then you have certain Psalms of Lament that actually stubbornly refuse to confess sin at all. Most dramatically, by the way, the communal lament that many of you have studied with me in the past, Psalm 44, where Dafka, the people say, we didn't do anything wrong, you did. So I hear what you're saying about Tachnon in the sense of desperation, but... Yeah, okay, yes, yeah, although here it appears to be an accusation against God. Let, let, hang on to this thought, because I don't, I, okay, yeah, um, John? In so much religious discourse, there's an assumption often stated very explicitly that given that God is good and wonderful and does great things for us, not that God, here the message is God it, it's not just that I happen to be suffering bad things, but it's your fault. Like, you, you, what, what Good. are you doing to me? Good, yeah. So, thank you. One of the things I hope we can get to talk about at the end is the question of one of the things that sort of is a shared assumption of almost all these Psalms is what I'm going to call, for lack of a more felicitous term, active omnipotence. Right? Anything that happens on some level can coherently be attributed to God. What does it mean to try, or to refuse, I suppose, to stand inside these psalms in a world in which you don't have a notion of God who's that actively omnipotent, right? I'll just give you an example of this. I, I not long ago emailed a friend of mine who's a fairly well-known Christian theologian. I was giving a paper in, at a conference on this psalm. And I said, hey, what do you make of psalms like Psalm 88? And to my surprise, I got the response, um, incredibly powerful spirituality, really bad theology. And I, you know, I was like, wow, it's like very like bold. Like, you know, I always try to resist talking like that. Um, and his point was, look, I just don't believe that that's how the world runs. So at the end of the day, I'm moved by his grief, but I'm troubled by the you did this, you did this, you did this. I don't believe that. Right? So, yeah. Now, what, what, what animates these psalms in the way that you're saying, John, I think it's actually quite moving, is the audacity to say, if I'm suffering this badly when I don't deserve to, you, God, have fallen down on the job. Right? Again, I would just refer you to Psalm 44 in one of the most outrageous moments in the Bible where Psalm 44 says near the end, Ura. Lama tishan Adonai, right? Wake up, God, why are you sleeping? Which is a direct assault on a text that is probably familiar to almost all of you, if not all of you, right? Hine lo yanum velo yishan shomer Yisrael, right? The guardian of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Comes Psalm 44 and says, not sure. Or, right, remember how biblical texts live in their dialogue with each other. What does Elijah say to the prophets of the Baal? Maybe your God is sleeping, ha, 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 right? Comes Psalm 44 and says, yeah, maybe ours is too. That's chutzpah, right? But as I talked about in my earlier shir, this is the chutzpah that comes from relationship, right? 
In other words, this is not things that are said about God. These are things that are said to God. And I do think there's some difference there. Right? There is a difference, which we could try to unpack, between saying, hey, you know, I was just thinking, God really betrays me left and right, and saying, God, you betray me left and right. There is a kind of stubbornly dialogical quality to saying it to God. What that means, we can kind of think about as we go through the text, but I think there is a difference there. Um, just as declarations are love, are, of love are different. You know, if I say, you know, to my friends, you know, have I ever told you how much I love my wife? It's a totally different thing than saying to my wife, I really love you, right? There's something that is, it's not just, oh, who's being addressed in the moment. There's a different quality of the statement. So what I'm suggesting is true about, what's true about love, I'm suggesting is also true about protest and anger. That somehow the dialogicality to make up a word matters here deeply. Dan, then we're going to go on a Quickly, apropos of you know, echoes, interesting echoes, unless I'm misreading it, possibly that, well, but you Bakever. I mean, it sounds to me like a real interesting play in Psalm 92. Lagid Baboker, yeah. People catch what Dan just said? The notion that the, in verse 12, kever means the grave, may invite you to think of Mizmor Shir Lioma Shabbat, which talks about lahagid baboker chasdecha. The tr- simple transposition of the letters is a total subversion. Right, exactly. Your faithfulness and I. Okay, let, let's, now, let's now kind of do this a little systematically for a minute, okay? So I said at the outset um, that the psalm is even bleaker than people allow, and I wanted to just kind of make clear what I mean by that. Um, um, a, a recent um, commentator on the Psalms refers to this psalm as the mother of all laments. And in terms of its boldness, and as we've just seen, it's kind of its chutzpah and audacity, that makes sense. It is totally apologetic in giving voice to human suffering. However, it's important to note that what makes this psalm so powerful in part is the ways that it departs from the convention of how Psalms of lament work. Here's what I mean, okay? So, Bible scholars identify like this whole list of, of the aspects of psalms of complaint, right? Um, you have a complaint coupled with the characterization of the predicament the psalmist finds himself in. You have an appeal for help. You have sometimes curses against enemies, um, people who are hurting me. You have giving God motivations for intervening, Right? because you are merciful, because I will praise you, because whatever it might be. You have expressions of trust. God, although I'm in this situation now, I do believe that you're a faithful God and you will one day save me and for sure you will hear me. And also vows to praise. When you redeem me, I will praise you forever and ever. Now, a psalm to be a lament doesn't have to contain all of these aspects, but it's striking how much of this is missing right here. So if you call this the mother of laments, you still have to notice, right? Fascinatingly, there is no explicit appeal for help, which scholars always call the most important part of lament. I'm crying out because I want you to help me. Here, it is almost as if, you know, the the image that comes to my mind right now, and this might be a little bit strange to people, is imagine the worst romantic relationship you ever had, where if you never had this experience, great, but if you did, right? You're tempted to argue a point again, and then you realize, there's just no way I'm going to be heard. And then you realize this relationship is done. 
a little bit what you have in this psalm is, I'm not going to ask you for anything anymore. I've been asking you my whole life. I'm just not doing that. And it's really powerful, right? There's no request here. No, I think it's a report of a past request. But we're going to come to that in a minute. I don't think it's a request. Um, there's no expression of trust. And there's no certainty of being heard. If anything, there's the desperation over not being heard. There's no vow to praise God when he is saved because there's no indication that he expects to be saved. And most crucially, psalms move from lament to a promise of praise. This psalm ends where it lives with the word darkness. Right? There is none of that. So if it's the mother of lament, you might also say it's lament on steroids. Right? And it's lament that almost shatters the genre because it's so extreme, which is, again, another way of getting at what I asked at the beginning. What is this doing here? And what are we supposed to do with a text like this? You have your hand up? No. <laughs> Enjoy. Um, okay, so let's do this. Let's read this a little bit systematically and see what we come up with. So first, the opening, the opening verse. So first of all, it's worth noting, because in some psalms this is really helpful to know, that most, at least academic scholars of psalms, are convinced that in almost every instance, the superscription, right, the, you know, Mizmor le David, is not original to the psalm, is a kind of commentary. Many people talk about the superscriptions as the first examples of Midrash within the Tanakh itself. Most of the time, it's things like Mizmor le David, like a psalm of David, or, you know, for the conductor. Occasionally, it's something really weird. Like every day in Jewish prayer, we, ha- we read what is perhaps the strangest superscription, right? right? A psalm for the de- dedication of the temple, which turns out to be a psalm about a person recovering from desperate illness. Right? Have you ever thought about that? That superscription is wacky, right? It does not seem to belong there. Um, it is, by the way, another indication that very early on people might have interpreted illness to be a metaphor for exile. You healed me from my illness. How? You allowed me to build a temple for you. That is, you ended my exile. But, okay, I'm saying this here only because this is a very bizarre introduction. And Shirmi's more, a song, a psalm, Livnei Korach. B'nei Korach, according to the book of Amdivrei Amim Bet, had a special role in the Beit HaMikdash of praising God as loud as they could. This is different than what most people associate with B'nei Korach, which is we just read, right? These people do not appear to have been swallowed by the earth. They, in fact, were praising special God praisers. Olam Natseach, for the leader or conductor, and then a phrase that nobody knows how to translate, al machalat la'anot, Machalat la'anot, some people think it's a kind of melody. Some people think machalat here is related to the Hebrew machala for illness. Um, some Rishonim, medieval commentators, think machalat comes from the word chalil for flute, to be played by the flute. What this means is, we don't know what this phrase means, right? Al-machalat la'anot, leheimana hezrachi, heiman is in divrei amim, also described as an important temple singer, Okay. This is very unusual in that you don't usually have 19 headings of a psalm. You usually have one, right? Or two. Like, not this whole litany. Um, sometimes I have wondered, which is probably not a sustainable idea, 
that the reason you have such a confused, endless litany of introductions here is that whoever is doing this introduction is brought to stammering by this text. Right? Like, what is this? Who wrote this? For what? Why is this here? Okay? I don't think that's crazy. I'm not sure it's right, but I don't think it's crazy. Okay? So verse 2. Adonai Elohei Yeshuati. God, um, God of my salvation. Now, here, it's worth saying some Bible scholars, especially evangelicals, will say about this, oh, here, you see, praise is never far away. He calls God Elohei Yeshuati, right? It's praising God. Um, I, I have to say that the more times I read this psalm, the more convinced I am that the phrase Elohei Yeshuati is ironic. Um, and that actually, or if you prefer, it is said at the opening of the psalm, and by the time the psalm is over, like in the psalmist's life, it's a distant memory. It's been forgotten because of how much he has to go through on, on a day-to-day basis. Um, some people suggest that the text should be amended and read, Adonai Elohai Shivati, God, I cried out to you, which is just dropping the Yud. However, as a rule, I don't like dropping letters unless there's like some manuscript evidence to do that. Um, I like to say you don't amend texts unless you really have to. Um, now, if you think, wait a second, Shai, what are you talking about? How can this text be accused of being ironic? So just for a minute, look at verse 4. Ki ot nafshi. The word sav'a, sated, you expect what comes there normally? I am sated with blessings. I am sated with the goodness. Sav'avira'ot, I have been sated with misfortune, is a deeply ironic formulation. Thank you, God. I hadn't had enough suffering yesterday, but you gave me some more today. Right? This is somewhere between irony and you even might want to argue sarcasm. Right? Um, and then verse 8, Alai samcha chamatecha, the word samcha usually means God upholding the downtrodden. Right? Here it means... Thank you for using your hand to throttle me with your rage. In other words, I think there's a bunch of cases in this psalm where, which suggest that reading the verse as ironic is not crazy, right? Um, I'm, not, I'm not selling that as the only possible reading, to be clear, but I think it's a totally possible um, reading. Um, and then the next phrase, just for... Hebrew-wise, is complicated because it feels like it's missing something. Yom tsa'akti valayla negdecha. You almost expect another verb. Yom tsa'akti, by day I cried, right? And by night, I, where's, where's the verb, right? JPS translates this, when I cry out in the night before you. This is a very hard reading. Anyone, understand, anyone who's like an advanced Hebrew student want to tell me how JPS is reading the word yom here? We're talking about verse 2. Yom tsa'akti valayla negdecha. JPS takes yom here to be when. That seems unlikely when two words later we have the word lila. Right? I mean, I guess you could say that's like beautiful poetry, but it seems unlikely to me. Yom tsa'akti valayla negdecha seems unlikely. Um, I I, I think you would probably want to say tsa'akti is distributed to both halves of the verse. That is to say... By day I cried out to you. By night I cried out to you in your presence. Something like that, right? 
day and night I cry out before you, something like that. Um, okay? Um, and then he goes on and he says, Tavo lefanecha tfilati. So, um, Richard suggests, no, it's not really true that there's no petition here. There is this one petition. It's possible that this is a, a petition. It seems more likely to me that this is a report of what he's saying in verse 2, right? By day and by night I cried out to you, here's what I said, right? Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to me. Right? By the way, rinati is a beautiful word. Because you think of the word rina, most people who are inside of biblical Hebrew, and they think it means a shout of praise. Right? But rina doesn't mean a shout of praise. It means a shout. Meaning, he's not just praying. He's screaming. Right? Let my scream reach your ear. Okay? And then, and then um, again, what I just said for verse 4, kisav averaot nafshi. Right? Um, the phrase is usually used with good. I think I brought you some examples of that in the, in the packet. Um, sources 4 and 5, you can see, Nisba'ah betuv beitecha, or tisba nafshi, right? To be sated is a positive word. To be sated with misfortune, as I've said, is ironic. Um, okay? And that, right? My life has arrived at Sha'ol. Sha'ol um, is... In the biblical imagination, when a person dies, they go to some netherworldish kind of place where the assumption is God does not reach there. God can't, God doesn't, not totally sure. But when you reach the netherworld, Sheol or Bortachtiot, you are cut off from God. So here, the person is actually alive but dead. Right? That's the imagery. Right? I'm already in the place that you don't reach. After all, I'm totally abandoned by you, and I'm overcome with my suffering. Now, verse 6, sorry, verse 5, we're going to kind of try to see where he goes here. Nechshaftim your devor. I am considered among, people think of me as someone who's already dead. And then, haiti kigever enayal, this too is ironic in an interesting way. JPS, I think here, fails to capture it. JPS, I, some of you have heard me say this endless times, JPS is ideologically, it, its project is to render the t- Tanakh in idiomatic English. And it is very good at that. The cost of rendering Tanakh in idiomatic English is you make no real attempt at capturing anything literary about the text. If you want to sort of understand the contrast, open Everett Fox's translations of the Bible, and that's the opposite of idiomatic Right? It reads like it's in German and Hebrew because all it's interested in is capturing the literary devices of the text, right? which makes it hard to read. Robert Alter is in some kind of middle ground between those two things. So JPS here translates, Gever enayal, that's great, you know, a helpless man, except what you miss with that is Gever, in biblical Hebrew, means a person of vigor, like the word Gvura, or Israeli slang, Atagever, right? Right? You're virile. Gever enayal is deeply ironic. I'm like a vigorous man, only with no vigor. Right? I'm super strong, but weak. Right? That's what you've turned me into. Um, okay? 
And then comes the next one. And then I think maybe you could argue this is, by the way, ironic also. Bameitim chofshi. Liberated among the dead. That's a strange way to be liberated. Um, and the, the best I can do here, if I want to read this literally, is that in Malachim Bet, um, lepers, which is a bad translation of Mitzoraim, are sent to what's called um, Beit HaChofshi, the house of those who are free. Um, a, a, a friend of mine who's a remarkable Bible scholar, a British Bible scholar, I think wonderfully renders this. He says we should think about the word chofshi here the way an employer says to someone they're firing, I'm going to have to let you go. I'm freeing you. <laughs> right? I'm going to let you go, which is deeply euphemistic. But metim chofshi, you are free to experience death. Right? I'm letting you go. Right? And by the way, I think this actually makes sense, and it actually makes the relational power more. I'm sure none of you know what I'm talking about, but if you ever had like a real fight with someone you love, and you find yourself capable of a sarcasm you didn't know you were capable of, <laughs> I'm not talking to the tzaddikim in the room. Cedarbound. <laughs> Tell me, right? You know, right? But mitim chavshi is actually, in its own way, can be taken to be withering. Um, um, okay, um, John Golden Gay, an outcast. Um, and then, kemo chalalim kever, literally like corpses littered in the field. This is not a guy who's feeling good about his life situation, right? I mean, and the, the brutality of the language is on purpose, right? I mean, I, I, like, a, like a corpse abandoned in the field, like a... Yeah, yeah, I guess, I, you know what, you're right. I a little bit was... Um, hearing the image of, of being kind of cast out, but you're right, lying in the grave, you're right, it's a better... Asher lo zachar tamod, you don't even remember them anymore. Vehema miyadcha nigzaru, and they have been cut off from your hand. Okay? And then comes something very, very important, right? So far you could say, this is all stuff you allowed to happen to me. And now comes, it's not stuff you allowed to happen to me. You did this. And that's that back to that active omnipotence issue, right? You have cast me into the bottom of the pit. Right? We have here not complaint, but accusation. Right? Confrontation. By the way, here I want you to just feel our way into this psalm. Saying that my predicament is directly a result of God makes my being saved both more unlikely and also more possible. After all, if you did this, you can end this. Right? It's, it's, it's actually d double-edged. Is it clear what I mean by that? It has a real double edge to it. On the one hand, if you did this, what am I hoping for because you did this to me? On the other hand, if you did this to me, you could end this. Judd? Doesn't that add in an element of the lament that you said was missing? Because um, if, given the active omnipotence that, that's reflected here, if there's also an active omniscience. God knows that if you're saying to God that God... Yeah, so, yeah, so what I would say to you about that is if there is a request here, it is at best implied. 
And that in itself, you know there's a difference between hoping that someone will do something for you and asking for it. The difference is trust. And I think, by the way, one question I would ask as you're hearing this psalm is at this late date, when this psalmist is screaming at God, is what he's asking for salvation or explanation? Right? Those are different things. Is he still saying, which he doesn't seem to ever say, unless you take verse 3 as Richard does, right? Save me. I still haven't given up on your saving me much as I've almost given up on your saving me. Or is he saying, at least explain yourself. At least explain how the God who cares about me has completely abandoned me. At least tell me why you did this. Right? And you can imagine a human relationship that is coming to a brutal end in the same situation, right? Where you're not even sure. Are you asking for the person to change their behavior towards you? Or just want to understand why they did that. Right? There's a way in which it's actually helpful, I think, to kind of refer back to rupture within human relationships. Adasa, you're going to say something? Then. Dad's words in his memoirs, post Holocaust, that you know we were people who believed in you. You were our father. Right. This is a poem. Yeah. So it's very interesting. There's a, there's a Bible scholar named Carlene Mountalfo, um, the Christian Bible scholar, who has written this really interesting essay about this chapter, which she wants to claim that in the entire Tanakh, the single most powerful post-Holocaust prayer is this, because it, A, makes, gives no ground to the idea that we did something to deserve this, and B, makes no statement anymore of we still trust you. It gives voice to real rupture, right? Something has been irrevocably broken, or so she argues about this psalm. So yeah, I think you can um, say that. Um, yeah, I mean, which is what makes it so incredibly excruciating to hear. Um, okay, um, there were a bunch of hands up. Yeah, uh, Betsy. To me, it reads like waiting for Godot, actually. Because there's this whole idea. You really are a theater person. It's amazing. We've had a lot of plays come up here today. It's awesome. Go ahead. But it has the same idea of that they say in Godot, who was saved? One was saved, one was damned. It's unclear. We're waiting for salvation or we're waiting for explanation. Right, right. There's a tremendous amount of blame of God in Godot, but at the same time, they're still waiting. They're still waiting for Godot. They've done it before, they know he'll never come. Nevertheless, they come back again. And there's also the same idea of bravado as you have in Waiting for Godot. There's a bravado about the way we're going we're gonna to talk, we're going we're gonna to confront this. So I, I, let me just pick up on the second thing you said for a minute. And I was, I was hoping we would get to this later on, but maybe I'll, I'll say it now. One of the things that personally I find most interesting about this psalm is that language like this is, among other things, a reclamation of the speaker's own dignity, Right? I refuse to just lie here quietly and say, oh God, you are the righteous judge of all. When the world is unfair and you fail me, I will say that and thereby reclaim my dignity. And by the way, I think there's also a little bit of a hint of relationship in this whole thing about when, when people die, do you still hear their praise? There is an enormous chutzpah in imagining that God cares about my praise. God has a lot of praisers. So I died, Judd will praise God. And the psalmist, in a funny way, seems to assume, no, you know what? I matter. When you betray me, you betray someone whose praise matters. That's an accusation, but it's also a self-affirmation. 
I think. And the really interesting piece here in this whole psalm is like the refusal to allow myself. My self-image will not reflect my circumstance. My self-image will rebel against my circumstance. I didn't deserve this. I don't deserve this. It's your fault, it's not mine. This is chutzpah, right? I mean, nobody ever taught their fourth grade class in yeshiva, when you suffer terribly in life, make sure you remember to remind God it's his fault. But in some ways, it's the spirituality of some of these psalms. Make sure to remind God, you're not taking, I'm not, I'm not owning this. Okay? And that again, look, as we're going to get to in a few minutes, I sort of want to hear, what, what do we do with this? Um, Joe, you're Hmm. Like it's just an accusation. Anyone's even listening. He just, he just wants him to listen. But I'm trying to think of times where you know no one's listening, but you're talking anyway. Um, right. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I guess what I would say back to you, which I'm not totally persuaded by, but I think there's, it's worth wrestling with this psychologically. Sometimes talking about or even to an absent God is a way of making that God present even against that God's will. You know, there's a way in, really, there's a way in which I'm just going to talk about you and then I will experience you as here. So when I first kind of had this thought, my thought was, you know how like you can sit at a shiva with someone who's just lost their spouse, who was their spouse for their entire adult life, and you see that the way she talks about him is like, he's still there. She'll, she, she can't imagine stopping to tell stories about him because it keeps him in the room, right? Or maybe this, more aptly for this case, after a breakup. You ever had a moment where you talk to someone and like they've been broken up for a while and all they really want to do is tell you about the ways that the person betrayed them and that's all they want to talk about and you can sense that it's because they need the person to still be there because otherwise they have to face the darkness of being all alone. This is like a theological version of that, right? I'm not going to stop talking to you. If I stop talking to you, I really am by myself. If I accuse you of leaving me alone, I'm still talking to someone. That's close to nothing, but it's not nothing. So I think there's, there's a lot going on here psychologically. Um, okay, let, um, what, uh, one more. Sorry, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yes, sorry. So if it's talking to God, then it's interesting that we as like a group of people like in this room having reverence for God or reading it and appreciating it because it seems very lonely. Like the person in this situation is alone. And, and part of me is like, is this madness? Like just talking to God? Like isn't that mad? But then it's also, if you understand the language of talking to God, it seems like we can all be together or in support of that person. Well, I just want to understand, are you saying it's madness to talk to God at all, or it's madness to talk, about, to talk to God when you've been betrayed to this degree? Well, I'm not trying to like, question the whole thing. But I think it's, it, it comes from a place of like, deep loneliness to find yeah. that conversation and to direct it to God. So that I'm curious, like, my overall question is, who is this to? And I was just noticing that it's interesting that even a person who's so alone to talk to God is never alone because we're yeah it's actually very moving right it's, uh, the, the tradition gives him voice and community by making this canonical right in fact he's not alone 
he's part of the voices of tradition that matter most. That's not nothing. Um, Yoni, I'm going to tell you what I sometimes tell 19-year-olds that annoys them no end. The art is in 10 minutes to ask your question again in a way that seems like it's exactly apt to the moment that we're at. So, okay. So it annoys them no end, which is why I say it. No, but anyway. Um, okay. Now, verse 7, I just want to show you because this is like fun Hebrew. Um, in the darkest in the darkness, in the dark places, this is what's called a, let's see if I can, I always get confused between hendiadis and, and um, it's a hendiadis, meaning it, so you would say, it would translate this in deepest darkness or in darkest depths. You, when you say two things together like this that seem to be a pair, they come to accentuate each other. It's not in the darkness and the deep, it's in the deepest darkness or the darkest depth. You follow what I'm trying to say here? Uh, okay, great. Um, and then verse 8, again, we talked about earlier, right? And then, and all of your breakers, inita, by the way, inita, those of you who were in my last class, inui is oppression. This is not a neutral word. Oh God, let me describe the world, right? You happen to pass all your breakers over me. No, God, you oppressed me with them, okay? It suggests God's injustice. Right? And then Selah, I can honestly tell you that you can be in good company by not knowing what it means. Um, um, many people believe that Selah is a musicological term originally. It appears at major disjunctures in a psalm. It may mean cue the instruments. Right? Now, we don't think of psalms that way. Um, but um, Radak, whatever it's worth, which I think is unlikely, took selah to, from the Hebrew root salal, to sing with a raised voice. I think it probably represents a break of some kind. Now, what's a breaker? Anybody? Enormously damaging, forceful waves. Exactly. This is what, remember what Yonah says, for example, kol mishbarecha vegalecha alayavaru, all of your waves and breakers. What? Wave is no. Well, so God. Well, so as, like any language, right? You have different words that represent more and less intense versions of the same thing. Like, if you wanted to have fun with biblical Hebrew, we could make a list of all of the ninety-seven ways of saying "poor person" in Hebrew, and then create a spectrum of how intense the poverty is suggested by that word. I, my impression is that mishbarim are intrinsically more intense versions of galim. Um, yeah, exactly. Right. But breaker, we tr- sorry, yes, thank you. Break, we translate breaker because it's literally what shavar means. Um, okay. Now, um, now, I want to say something else here that is about verse 9 that is really crucial. You see this a lot in Tehillim, and it's crucial for this text. Some people have already alluded to it. Very often in Tehillim, when a person feels isolated and cut off from God, it comes coupled with feeling cut off and isolated from God's people, right? Being lonely from God and being lonely from, that's not, all of a sudden I'm speaking Yiddish, being lonely from God, being lonely for God and being lonely for other people often come coupled. If you want to look later, for example, you can look at Psalm 42, 43, where the psalmist is crying. He wishes he could be near God, but he is stuck in Hermonim. He's stuck in some, you know, far off mountain in the north. 
And then all of a sudden he's talking about how he misses the chance to walk in pilgrimage with everyone to the temple. So he's, right, he's, he misses God, but he misses people too, which um, is actually important because the isolation here, as other people have mentioned, um, is crucial. And if, in fact, this psalm is about illness, as I think will become likely in just a moment, so being cut off is, for many people, right, the most fundamental experience of illness, right? Think of Elaine Scarry's famous work on the body in pain about how the, one of the fundamental experiences of illness is incommunicability. I can never really tell you what it means for my body to be hurting. There's just no way that I can fully communicate that to you, and therefore, it's isolating. Not to mention that people eventually get, a, as we'll see in a minute, people eventually abandon those who are sick, as, as we'll see. Um, okay, now... Now, miyuda'ai, um, where was I? Sorry, hirchakta miyuda'ai, you make my companions shun me. Um, the NIV translation, um, which is one of the kind of standard Protestant Bible translations, I have to say I love it. It's a little colloquial, um, but it takes very powerful. It translates this phrase as, you have taken from me my closest friends. Right? It's very direct. Miyuda'ai, um, and then you have made me a to'eva. Um, you have made me disgusting to them. This makes me think about the response of countless human beings who walk into a friend's hospital room and all they can, I'm not saying this with any judgment right now, all they can take in is how bad it smells. It's disgusting in here. Right, and this is like a, this is one of the things that makes me think this really is in some important way about illness. Right, he knows, he knows how people viscerally respond to him. You've made me disgusting in their eyes. Kalu velo I would translate kalu as homebound, literally imprisoned. I'm imprisoned and I can't go out. And then, what'd you say? No, it's not can't go out. It's do not, the translation is do not go out. Um, yeah, but I think when you say lo say on the heels of kalu, if I say I'm in prison and I don't go out, it's, the reason if I'm in prison that I don't go out is that I can't go out. Um, I think. I always... <laughs> so the one time in my life I've ever spent in jail, um, I remember about four hours in, turning to, so just to be clear, this was in a protest, not for, um, um, I turned to my friend Rabbi David Rosen and I said, how about we leave now? And then I shook the thing and I said, hey David, I think we're in jail. <laughs> like, like, we actually can't leave now, right? Um, now, I, I have a feeling that that's what he's saying here. You could read it as I feel homebound and I'm so depressed that I can't leave. But then it's still I can't leave, right? I don't leave, I can't leave, verge off into each other. So, yeah, but please. It's that I can't, it's, I, I'm in prison, you shut me in. right? Yes, yes, exactly. I'm, I'm, you have imprisoned me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, thank you, yes. And then verse 10, I'm, I'm just trying to push a little bit so we can, we can zoom out and talk about this more. Um, 
Um, my eyes pine away from affliction. I think you can do a little better than that. My eyes are dim with grief. My eye grows dim with sorrow. My eyes hurt um, from their suffering, something like that. And then notice, those of you who like the way biblical poetry works, the magnificent pun of eni and oni. My eye suffers from affliction. Karaticha Hashem b'chol yom, right? I would call upon you, God, every day. And I would... Um, I would stretch out my hands to you. By the way, since Jews are not always so good at this, I just want to mention, stretching out my hands to you is a posture of helplessness, right? This is what it means when a person prays and does this, right? I have nothing, right? Modern Jews are bad at body language, the body language of prayer. Like we just, um, it's one of the many ways that we are, you know, basking in our own spiritual impoverishment. We, like the whole notion of actually saying something like that is very hard. It's a, it's a deeply un-American posture. My hands are empty, I have nothing. Svartim do it better than Ashkenazim. You know, it's funny. Um, um, Clinton McCann, who's a very interesting Protestant Bible scholar, he says, you know, at one point he says, you know, Americans can't really understand the Psalms because the theology of the Psalms is God helps those who can't help themselves. It's deeply un-American. Right? It's just deeply, it's against the whole ethos of America. What do you mean? Like, I believe in the God who helps those who help themselves. After all, I am the only agent God has in the world. I'm only being satirical because I'm making a satire of myself also. But like, there's a way in which we're not so good at that kind of language. I, n- many of you have heard me say literally countless times that I find to be one of the most interesting moments of the calendar year is watching American Jews, and I've done this in many synagogues, singing at the top of their lungs, Avinu malkeinu choneinu vaneinu ki ein banu ma'asim. <laughs> Never has a less American statement been spoken. Right? Oh God, have grace upon us because we got nothing. What do you mean we got nothing? <laughs> I have a BA from an Ivy League college. I don't got nothing. <laughs> right? I made a lot of money. Right? I mean, I got nothing. We, we, we're, we have a very hard time with that kind of the admission that autonomy is a joke. Right? We have a very hard... American Jews, I mean, who in many ways bought more into the upper middle class American fantasy than anybody else. Right? We just have a very hard time with that. So we like sing the words, but I'm not sure how much we stand inside them. Um, okay, um, there was, yeah, please. Can you tell me your name? Oh, John. Uh, when you were reading in verse 10, you said, I wouldn't call for you. Yeah, sorry. So yes, so here's an incredibly annoying answer that's important about the Psalms. The tenses in the Psalms are crazy-making. Hebrew tenses, biblical Hebrew tenses in general are crazy making because all you need to do is put a vav in front of something and future becomes past, past becomes future. It's very confusing. Yes, the JPS translation is plausible and so is mine. I don't know. I mean, but you're right to point that out. And, and, and at go back, it was also about Richard's comment a long time ago. I'm not even sure at the end of the day that it makes a difference whether verse 3 is a, a petition or a remembrance of a petition. By the time he's done, he's done petitioning. But, you know... Uh, the, an incomplete verb, a complete verb, uh, it's a mess. Um, I, sometimes I think that's part of the power of biblical Hebrew is that the tenses are very confusing, but you're right to draw attention to that. Um, okay, um, just, just, just finish it. Now, we have in verse 11 to 13, we have a series of six 
forceful rhetorical questions to which obviously the implicit answer to all of them is no. The assumption is, remember I said that God does not reach into Sheol, but also people in Sheol don't praise God because after all, they have no access to God in that place. Okay? The word rifaim is often translated as shades. It basically means dead people in their lifeless state. They're whatever they are. They are like shadowy replicas of life. Uh, and the idea is, which is actually troubling from later theological perspectives, that on some level all links between God and humans are severed at the time of their death. Um, okay? Now, I do also want to mention, at the risk of suddenly sounding too pious, that there is something fascinating in the Psalms about the almost equation of being alive and praising. Like what it means to be alive is to praise God. That too, by the way, how strange that sounds to many people is a function of how secularized we all are. And that has nothing to do with denominations. Right? If I walked into, I don't know, I'm not trying to say anything. If I walked into, you know, a reformed synagogue in Columbus, Ohio, or a modern Orthodox synagogue in Englewood, and said, raise your hand. I mean, it's ridiculous, but raise your hand if you fully identify with the following statement. I am alive in order to praise God. And if I were prevented from praising God, I would be as good as dead. <laughs> we're very secularized. I think very few people would like, I'll be like, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was just thinking about that on the on Metro North coming home from my law firm. I was thinking if I couldn't praise God at Shacharis tomorrow, I'd be a dead man, right? A dead man with a massive mansion and a lot of other values, but a dead man, right? I don't think, I just think that's actually one of the ways in which modernity is very complicated. Another way of saying that is modernity is acid for a certain kind of piety, right? This is, it's actually very profound, right? It's not, I'm as good as dead. It's, I'm as good as dead and I can't praise you. There's such piety underlining that, that yell, underlying that yell, right? It's actually, I find it like extremely moving and frankly a little depressing as I think about my own life. Um, okay, now, um, Mark Brettler um, comments about the next few verses that what we're now going to do is replay the same thoughts but raise them to a higher pitch. Right? It's going to be even more intense for a minute. So he says, shivati, but I, God. Now, here, um, tell me your name again. John. John, sorry. I cried out to you. I cry out to you. Either one. Makes a big difference, arguably, right? Um, I cried out to you, uva boker tfilati tekadmeka. Now, this can sound quite pious. In the morning, my prayer greets you. Um, now, here's two possibilities, just to, like, make you a little crazy. So, actually, three, right? Morning is a time that is associated with God being expected to answer prayers in various biblical psalms. Ibn Ezra, sober as always, says, no, morning is when sick people sometimes have more energy, enough energy to pray. I would also like to propose that the word tikadmeka sometimes means um, to approach in prayer, but can also be a term that is quite violent. I don't remember this is from. Ethan? Kuma Elohim kodma fanav. Get up, God, accost them. Tfilatite kadmeka actually can be an accusation. Um, not I 
Every morning I'd get up and I'd say, No, I get up and i say, Where are you now? <laughs> right? I cost God. And again, the ambiguity is quite powerful, right? It can be neutral. Like, I come before you. Or I grab you by the lapels and I say, Is today going to be any different? You could tell I've been to too many kid services in my life with the Moda'ani <laughs> stuff. Okay, so now, and then comes the classic line in almost every lament. Lama Adonai, why God? Tiznach nafshi. Zanach is the classic word of the laments. Here's some possibilities of how to translate it. Spurn, reject, cast off. What does JPS do? Reject. I, I think, yeah, I think spurn is a little stronger, right? Why, um, why do you hide your face from me? Um, okay. Um, and then this beautiful pun, ani ani, which I think also means the entirety of me is afflicted. Right? It's not like I have ani ani. I, all I am is just a walking collection of afflictions. Um, and here I'm going to propose, this is, I just tried to propose this at a, in, a, in an academic context, and you'll tell me if you are persuaded by this or not, that the real key to this psalm is in a phrase that no one ever pays attention to. It's in the next phrase. He says, ani ani noar. Many psalms of lament seem to be predicated on the following thing. You know, God, I lived a pretty good life. We had a good relationship, and then all of a sudden things fell apart. Think about, you know, whatever you think about, you know. Things were going along great, and then I got a cancer diagnosis and everything fell apart. Things were going along great, and then my spouse decided in a way that totally shocked me to up and leave one day. Things were going great, and then I found myself unemployed and I couldn't feed my children. And what gives the Psalms of Lament often their power is the painful contrast between the current moment and its suffering and the larger frame of the life, which has actually been okay. What I think makes this psalm so unique is revealed only towards its end, and I, it seems to me that it hits like a ton of bricks. Ani, ani, I am entirely affliction, uh, afflicted. Vigovea mi noar. I have been dying since I was a little kid. Meaning this is not a psalm about illness. This is a psalm about chronic illness. This is a psalm about someone who can't remember anything else. This is not like a marriage that after 25 years falls apart and you find yourself wondering, wait, you guys were great for 25 years. What just happened? It's no. This marriage has been broken from three weeks in. I don't have, on what grounds am I going to hope for anything else? I don't have anything else to look back on. This is what there is. I've been dying since I was a kid. This is, I think, the psalm is actually quite unique in that way. Um, it, you know, it flails its fists at God because, you know what? You abandoned me a very long time ago, and nothing I did made it better. Now, the question that I am stuck with literarily or fascinated by is, why do we wait till the end of the psalm to give us this key piece of information? It almost, it is, it's almost like taking a needle and sticking it in you, right? Whatever balloon of hope was left has now been, right, deflated. It's always been like this. It's been like this as long as I can remember. And this too gets a voice in Tehillim. It's always been like this. 
In other words, and here's the proposal I, I want to make. What many psalms do is they implicitly and sometimes explicitly offer a frame in which to hold the experience of sorrow in some kind of positive other experiences. This psalm refuses to do that. And the only thing that does that is the placing of this psalm in the larger canon of the book of Tehillim. Because this psalm is not its own book, it's placed in a book in which other kinds of experiences are reported also. Right? If all you had was this psalm, what any sane counselor would tell you is, you need to get out of this relationship. Right? But this psalm is not the only psalm you have. Now, there's the challenge. You don't want to be... Like you, I, I would invite you not to become the kind of apologist who says, well, calm down. It's only one out of 150. Don't need it. It's whatever. It's not a big deal. No. This psalm stands alone. It's forceful and it's powerful and it needs to have its voice. And yet it's not the only psalm in the book. I don't know if any of you are familiar with a very odd book um, by David Blumenthal called Facing the Abusing God, which is an attempt to read Psalms of Lament in the wake of the Holocaust. It is a dark, dark book. And in some ways, it's very courageous. And in other ways, it's just very weird because there's no other frame. It's not, God, I'm going to yell at you about the Holocaust, especially since I know you as a redeemer and a lover and a comforter. It's facing the abusing God. I remember when I finished that book, I thought, wow, you know, if I was a counselor and someone reported just this to me, I'd be like, let me walk you to the shelter. I, and I'm not trying to be flipped. There's nothing funny about this. Like, I really want to be clear about that. Like, like, without some other, I don't know, softening presence, it's kind of crazy. Like, why are you still here? Um, and I, what I'm suggesting is that the canon provides other glimpses of God in a very different idiom, in a very different mode, and thereby makes this an experience, a very real experience. For some people, the defining experience of their life. And yet it's not the only picture of God we're given, which is the only way that a religion, I think, can function with images like this. Otherwise, again, walk away. Um, then finally, just one last, last thing. Um, so first of all, I don't know what afuna means. <laughs> I'll just tell you that. And um, I'm in verse 16. Um, um, afuna can mean wherever I turn, like efne. Um, afuna can mean I'm scared, as in pen yirbe, lest, right? Um, afuna can mean I am in despair. I don't know. I don't know what it means. Um, any of those possibilities. And then Right? Alai avru haronecha, your rage. It's not just that God is hurting him, God is angry at him, he thinks. Biutecha tuni, right? Your, um, your terrors basically destroy me, they rip me apart. Hekifu alai yachad. I am in, I would translate this as, I am engulfed by them, right? I am engulfed by your terrors. And then, I want to, this is what I, I want to sort of end by noting this. He says it again. You have turned away from me, lover and friend. And then the way that the Masoretic text punctuates this is, which JPS translates as, my companions are out of my sight. 
Um, I actually think that I would like to propose, following certain scholars, that a better way to punctuate this would be, Hirchakta mimeni varea miyuda'ai ellipsis machshach. You have caused lover and friend to shun me, my companions, darkness. End of psalm. We end here in utter desolation. Machshach. End. So what? So talk to me a little bit about this psalm. Tell me what you want to do with this. Yeah. Tradition of the suffering servant, or but there's no love here. No, again, Mikabli Yisur and Be'ahava, accepting God's afflictions in love is a very rabbinic idea. Okay, but besides being intrigued with Anyani, which is that my suffering is me, that's ultimately what he's defined by his suffering. And there's no way out. Even if he dies, since there's no right. suffering underneath the grave, he's just, like, kind of, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. I suffer, that's me. And well, that's Aniani. That's Aniani. He's describing in gruesome detail what that is, but he's caught in a catch-22 because that's who he is. If he stops suffering, by definition, he's dead. Ah, you're saying that's all that's left of him at this point. Yeah, I mean, you, you can hear, you can imagine, no doubt you can, you can imagine someone in your life saying a sentence like that, right? That's actually all there is to me at this point. You sometimes hear someone who is extraordinarily depressed saying a sentence like that. It's one of the reasons why it's hard for some people, I, I say this only with, with pathos and empathy, to give up on being depressed because it's the only self they know, right? I, I, who would I be if I wasn't this? Um, but I'm curious what, Jeff, what would you what would you make of this? Meaning, so after that characterization, therefore A, this is a powerful psalm to pray, therefore B, this is just too much, therefore something else, like what's, what's the therefore in your mind from what you just said, or is there one? In his mind, I don't think there is. I think your question of why do we why did we save it? Why did we give it value? I mean, is it the perfect offering? I mean, it's, it's a testament to someone who only has his suffering. And that's what defines him. And it's, but there's no takeaway. There's, like you said, there's no... So, so, but what do you make of what I said earlier? I'm curious whether this is helpful to people or actually kind of off base. That actually the very fact of insistently speaking is on some level, this actually goes back to Betsy's comment earlier, right? Um, the very fact of insistently speaking is, in, is sort of saying it's not all there is. It's close to all there is, but close to all there is and all there is are different, right? It's like the line between impossible and very unlikely. Actually, they're very close together, but they're oceans apart. So the very fact that I speak, you, you know, I'll tell you what, 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 what this reminds me of for whatever it's worth. So in one of his most, I think, religiously and psychologically astute essays, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik argues that in the very act of expressing and articulating a need, one is redeemed. There is a, a redemption of a sort 
an existential redemption, if you will, that comes from being able to say, I need healing. I need whatever, you know, whatever it is. That there's something away, we redeem ourselves in the very act of giving our experience voice. What I have found myself wondering a lot about this psalm is, is protest the same thing? A way in which, you know, in a life that feels totally distraught and destroyed, saying, I didn't deserve this, is an act of self-reclamation that is actually in some ways hugely transformational. I don't mean that in a Pollyannish way. Like, it's not like, it's not like, it's not like his body's going to hurt any less or people are going to all of a sudden flock and become his friends. But there's something about the assertion of, it's not fair. Why did you do this? That is a kind of reclamation. I, I don't know, what, what do you think? I mean, yes, no? Go ahead. Yeah. Speaking it and putting words to it, articulating your despair, and even if you're just crying out to God and there's no, there's not a human there to hear you, you're hearing yourself. You're articulating that. I think that's terribly powerful, and owning it, and that's you're wallowing, but you're bringing yourself out of it because you're able. Yeah, I mean, maybe not all the way out of it, but, but right, a, a lift there to being able to articulate. Yeah, I guess actually what, when you say that, it brings me back to, Jeffrey, something that you said a minute ago. When he says, ani, ani, I am defined by my suffering, the protest of I don't deserve it to be this way is on some level of defiance of the fact that all I am is suffering. I'm also dignity, right? It, it, right? Some way there. Because you're recognizing the suffering that you're going through, and because you're recognizing it as suffering, you're inherently saying, I don't deserve it. See, but you know, you also said something else though, that I just want to just briefly underscore because I thought it was interesting. You said, even though you're not saying it to a person, but only to God, because I think it's important that for the Psalms, the logic might very well be the opposite, right? You're not just saying it to a person who's as vulnerable to suffering and degradation and deprivation as you are. You're saying it to God, right? In other words, you're saying it to something and someone that's ultimate. This is, I think, by the way, in, in Rabbi Soloveitchik's writings, his go jump all the way to the 20th century, if I understand him correctly, one of the reasons that prayer is redemptive, potentially, in a way that psycho, psychotherapy is not, in the same way for him, is your therapist is, at the end of the day, as vulnerable and fragile as you are. Now, you could say, wait, but that's what makes it comforting. But from his, his metaphysical assumptions, no, you want to hold on to something that is somehow transcendent, ultimate, grounding. I don't know if that makes sense to people. It may, it may be actually deeply counterintuitive from an American culture that embraces psychotherapy so much. Um, which, by the way, is, I'm not saying that. I actually kind of am sympathetic to that. But to gr one of my favorite phrases in Soloveitchik is that people discover that they are bereft of an ontic fulcrum. <laughs> <laughs> which I believe means... There's nothing in being itself that holds you there. Right? You're just, all you are is kind of, to use a rabbinic idiom in a slightly sloppy way, poreach ba'avir. All you are is like, you know, you're like a person who's floating. You have nothing, there's no foundation. The only thing in the world that truly has an ontic fulcrum, I love that. Is that an ontic fulcrum? Never mind. Um, <laughs> um, um, 
The only thing in the world that really has an ontic fulcrum is God, who is the only ontic fulcrum, right? That is to say, the only thing on which being rests. Somehow, for Soloveitchik, being heard by that is different than being heard by another person who's as bereft of a grounding in ultimate something as you are. I'm not sure I can defend that so much as explain it. Go ahead, you want to finish your thought. Go ahead. Yeah. It's interesting that, because you're juxtaposing this a lot with the American psyche and how we relate to prayer. If you've ever been in need of that kind of assistance, right? It's really hard to ask your family, your friends, your neighbors for help. Right? You're in cancer treatment. You're, you know, this is why we have, um, you know, caring bread. We, we have people bake for you and cook, cook meals for you when you're home, right? It's really hard to ask people and say, I'm really in a hard place right now. So I hear a- So the link reaching out to God is easier in that respect from the spiritual aspect is the other way around. I think that's what I'm struggling with. So here, I, I just want to, if I could, push what you said one step further as, a, you know, a veteran of two decades of chronic illness, you know, when, you're, when you are acutely ill, asking for help is hard. When you're chronically ill, nobody pays attention. Nobody pays attention to chronic illness. Don't believe them when they tell you otherwise. Nobody pays attention to chronic illness. Not really. Um, because people, I mean, I, I mean, nobody is a little hyperbolic, right? But like nobody pays attention to chronic illness, not, right? Yeah, oh, how are you? Nobody says to someone who's been sick for 17 years, do you need someone to go grocery shopping for you? It's just not the way the world works. And I think that that's important here because when he says, like, I've been abandoned by friends, all of a sudden when he says, I've been sick forever, you realize, oh, right. Yeah, you've been sick since you were 15, now you're 50? I don't know. I don't know if anybody is still offering to buy you groceries. I don't mean to sound bleak, but I, I think you will find very few people who have severe chronic illness who would say that their experience is very different from what I just said. Yoni, I'm sorry. You, like, the entire time you've been waiting to talk. I just want to make sure 10 minutes has passed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Give him a hand. Give him a hand. Very well done. Um, well played, my friend. So, uh, so um, I wanted to... When I hear this, uh, my ninth grade Rebbe is like in my mind saying, you know, Tehillim has every human emotion in it. And when he said it, Rabbi Lukens, I thought he was a little ridiculous. This brings me a little bit closer to thinking maybe he was on. Yeah, totally. And this is this, that emotion that I think is very genuine, which is I'm really unhappy. I have every reason to be unhappy. And I don't want your comfort. I don't want your explanation. I don't want you to say it's going to be okay. I just need to be upset right now. And that's... So you see this as, like, it's not asking for salvation or explanation. It's like an act of, like, what, def- raging defiance or something like I that. This is exactly what it says. It says a number of times, listen to me. This is like when you're having this uh, relationally. Like when you're, you know, angry with your spouse, you have something to come home that you say that you're upset from the day, and you come home to your spouse and you say, I have to just talk. And the moment your spouse, you know, interrupts and tries to say it wasn't so bad or let's fix it, <laughs> you're like, shh, I'm talking. I just need to get it off my chest. And I see this as a, as a scream, right, at God, of like, I'm gonna be unhappy now, and I'm not interested in any of your comforting words, and I don't even think you can fix it, I just need you to hear me out. And that's my request in verse three. Listen to me. You have been ignoring me all this time, 
now hear me, this is what you've made of my life. And I'm not redeeming it. And that's, and that's a, a kind of psychological place to be of there can be badness that's unredeemed and there can be horribleness. And the Holocaust is, I also thought of the Holocaust was reading it. And that's it. I'm, that's where I'm stopping for today. You know, what's interesting, and not to get sort of too abstractly philosophical, but, you know, theism, classical theism, has always struggled with the notion that there can be unredeemed evil. After all, isn't that what omnipotence gets you? That no evil can be unredeemed, and yet the Bible is perfectly willing to, as it were, live on the edge, right? It's willing to live on the theological edge and say, yeah, the only evil that's unredeemed is the evil that's your fault. Mic drop, right? And, the, and I don't mean that in any flip way at all. I mean it like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done here. I've said what I have to say. Um, it's a very intense place to end up. Um, another way of saying that is you understand why. You can read a psalm like this and understand why all kinds of liberal alternatives to the classical God emerge. Because one of the things they accomplish is they get God off the hook. Right? I mean, a process in the universe that makes for salvation did not intervene at Auschwitz. Okay? I'm not sure you can go on being as optimistic as all that. I mean, it's not like the Holocaust doesn't raise challenges for Mordecai Kaplan or anything like that, you know, Protestant versions of that. Um, what do you mean? I don't get what you're saying. Meaning... One of the ways that religious people, especially in the modern world, deal with how can a God who's omnipotent allow all this stuff to happen is to say, well, what do you, who told you God was omnipotent? And then, of course, what many traditional believers say is, well, a God who's not omnipotent is not actually God, right? And then they'll say, well, who told you you get to define what God is? And then you know, we, can have, we can all go off to the races, you know, pass the beer. No, but I mean, it's a really profound set of questions. I don't mean that, right? But you understand what drives that. It's like, oh, I don't want to have to attribute this to God. And similarly, you have versions of classical theism that say God is omnipotent, but God doesn't use God's omnipotence, right? And either that solves it for you or it doesn't solve it for you, or it solves it more or less adequately than something else. But in some ways, where this psalm ends up theologically struggling is precisely the place that invites all that wrestling, right? Because if, you know, at the end of the day, if God, you are actively omnipotent, it goes back to Hadassah's coming, like, so okay, so it's a post-Holocaust psalm, which ends in what exactly? Rupture, relational break, and then what? So if you're a philosopher, you can't end up there. If you're a person who prays, maybe you can, right? Because if you're a person who prays, it's a relationship, not a set of philosophical questions. I, I hope that makes some sense. Let, let's take a, just a couple more. Yeah. And also, I think the one way, the, the way, the way it's redeemed is, as you said before, because it's in a larger canon, right? So this is like, I think about like the Holzman by eight. Like this is, this is my psalm for today today, or maybe for this life, or for maybe for this week, whatever, this is how I feel, hopefully it's in a larger framework of there are other times when this is not the Yeah, so I think that you're right about that. The only thing I would say is I want to be careful to give it a canonical frame, just to put it in the context of the other Psalms, but not to thereby domesticate it. Because to say this is how I feel today is a defiance of what he says he feels all the time. 
And so, I, in other words, it's, it's, the challenge here, right, is give it a frame without effacing it. Right? In other words, really make space for it to be what it actually is. Um, and there's something there that I think is really, it's just, it's, what overpowers me about this is its courage. Right? It is not obvious that one can speak to the creator of heaven and earth this way. It seems to me far from obvious. And that's exactly why, uh, to say, go back to where we started, it's exactly why, or one of, the, one of the reasons why, this psalm is so submerged. So that even you know, a group of people who come to an executive seminar at Hadar in the summer, all of whom, to you know, one degree or another, care about Jewish learning, are on some kind of journey about learning Torah. So I was like, what is this doing here? Right? No, I think it's actually really important to say that because it's, it's really courageous. It assumes a lot of things about a God who actually won't smite me for saying this. Although what this psalmist might say, if, you know, you've smited me enough, what, you, well, what else are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to me? Yeah, last, we can have the last word. Oh, God. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Um, when you said this is about chronic illness toward the end, that, that made it incredibly moving for me. I know some, a, a young woman who is chronically ill, angry at God, what she, what I saw her do is beat on her father's chest. You gave me these genes, these Jewish genes, <laughs> that, that is her illness. Mm. And all he did was put his arms around her. And he didn't say anything. And she didn't want him to say anything. But if we had that kind of relationship with God, that we could just beat on his chest and know that he loved us, See, but I that think, would be enough. So I think that's enormously moving. I mean, really. But I'm not sure, just to be, maybe this is not what you're saying, that this psalmist has any sense that God is holding him. Quite the contrary. Meaning you would need the psalm to do something else. Or almost like you would need a pastor to say to you, if you say these words, God will not turn away from you and will hold you. The psalm doesn't say that. In fact, the psalm feels, the psalmist ends feeling abandoned, not held. Right? Um, I, think, I think that one of the ways that many of us have a, like a, a, I'm just gonna, a, an alternative to biblical spirituality is many of us in the moments when we feel anything at all, are more convinced that there's a God of solidarity with suffering than a God of salvation from suffering. Right? I think that's actually, and, and that's true even if you believe God is omnipotent. You know, I mean, very few people, I think, these days believe in, quote-unquote, active divine omnipotence in the sense that everything that happens in your life is being managed and run by God. You see that in a lot of Haredi writing. You see that almost nowhere else among modern Jews. Right? Very, it's like, oh yes, you know, you're sick. It must be that, you know, in some, it's, people don't, don't live that way. Um, and, and, that, I, and I would say that that leaves me in a way with the question that I, I, I had wanted to sort of maybe spend five minutes on, but we won't do it. I'll just leave this with you. It's like, and I, I've asked this question many times in this space before, you know, to what extent do you have to embrace the theological assumptions in toto of a psalmist in order to pray the psalm with integrity? 
That is to say, if I don't believe that God is actively omnipotent, can I stand inside with integrity, a psalm like this, and says, you did this to me. When in fact, if someone asks you discursively over coffee at Starbucks, you say, I don't think God did it to me. Right? Can a Kaplanian pray the Psalms of Lament? I, I think it's a really interesting question, spiritually, right? Can a, you know, you, you know, people understand what I mean by that? No? So, like, if you believe that, like, God is not omnipotent, God is not even, imagine everything, God is not personal, right? God is whatever God is, you know, a force, a, what, so, can I really say and stand there and say, you did this to me? Well, can I or can't I? I mean, I think that, I, and my sense is different people will answer this question very differently depending on to what extent what they're doing when they pray is theological in the sense of, oh, I need to have a worldview that I'm expressing in this moment as opposed to an experience that I'm giving voice to in the presence of whatever I understand God to be. So just to be clear, this was not a question that I think has an answer. I think it's a question worth asking to the extent that we want the Psalms to be personal to us in some way. Okay. There are people who look like they need to go pray this psalm right now. <laughs> There's a few of you in this room who are looking that way. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org Torah.